I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome. I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am joined today by my rabbi, David Lyon of Congregation Beth Israel. Thank you for joining me today. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And this is actually my first off-site interview that I've ever done. So I'm in Rabbi Lyon's office right now, which is a very special place to me because before I got married... I had three marital counseling sessions with Rabbi Lyon, and these were like famous sessions. I heard about the fact that I was going to have to have these when we asked you to officiate our wedding long before um, we ever came to meet with you. And I got so much out of these sessions. I remember in the first years, the first year of our marriage. So I got pregnant with Selma after we'd been married for nine months. So like the first year, first year and a half, we would probably bring these sessions up with each other like at least once a week, things that we remembered hearing. We just got so much out of them. Then we have our first kid. And I'm like, okay, when are you going to call me to set up our sessions? Because <laughs> there has to be a meeting about how to be married after you have a kid. Right. It is a whole new world. And so there was no meeting. I was just out in the wilderness, but I have always wanted to have a podcast, which I now finally have. And I've always wanted to ask you about this. I've always wanted to talk to you about how to take care of your marriage after you have children. Because if you don't have children, you probably don't know this, but this is like a whole new world. And there are also a whole new set of challenges. And as a Jewish person, I love the Jewish wisdom that is brought to the table in this area. I always get so much out of it. And I have so many non-Jewish friends who I share um, Jewish wisdom with, and they love it too. So I'm just so excited to hear a rabbi's perspective. Great. What a wonderful setup and context for our conversation today. Because it's true, there's a lot of conversation and wisdom to share in preparation for getting married, but there's a lot more that needs to be addressed when children come on the scene. So I think that one of the most important places to begin is to look at really what we say when we bless a baby at a baby naming, because one of the fundamental parts of the traditional blessing is to say, God, just as you blessed all those who came before us, including our patriarchs and matriarchs, we want God for you to set this child on a straight path in life, endowing the child with everything that Jewish parents or any parents would want for their children, knowledge, wisdom, insight, blessings, righteousness, and peace. But the blessing goes on to say, may you also bless the parents with the privilege to raise the children to maturity, to teach them the ways of their culture and heritage, to teach them a life of good deeds, and one day to accompany them to the wedding canopy. So the blessing ends with the words wedding canopy because in effect, when parents accompany their children down the aisle to the wedding canopy, what we call the chuppah, your parents are done with you. And that's when you really take charge of your own life and the life of your own family that you'll make in your own home, which obviously comes with certain 
responsibilities and boundaries and issues. And you get to navigate. I mean, I remember being under the hoopah and hearing that and thinking, this is awesome. <laughs> like, I've graduated. Now I have my yeah. own family. And then you think about it with your own kids. And it's like, no, that's never going to happen. Like, I'll always be under the hoopah with them. But, you know, you won't be. And it's a whole new adventure. It is. And it really requires remembering something that I said in premarital counseling, which is that you are each other's best friends. And that at the end of the day, you really need to continue to preserve your friendship, work on that relationship, because children do leave really your presence when they become teenagers and friends become more important than their parents. And then also when children go off to college, you become increasingly less important, except for the things that they need, like money and a car and food and laundry. <laughs> you sound like you have like some firsthand experience. I do. I have four grown children yeah. and now a grandchild. So I've always seen the role of parents. And I think educators use the term, even if it might be an old term, I think it's a very effective one, is to create a scaffold for our children. And a scaffold, just like it goes up the length of a building, um, our children need a scaffold in order to reach places that they need to go, but not necessarily with their parents. And if they can bring the resources with them up that scaffold to the places they're going and be effective and successful, then we, the parents who stand on the ground looking up at them, are not only proud of them and pleased that they're making their way, but they're also finding their way without us. And just as it ought to be, they need to become increasingly independent. So I'm a millennial parent and I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking this is so the ideal, this is so the goal that I have. I look at my children and I want to give them, if you will, I want to teach them how to fish. I don't want to fish for them. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I look around and I think what I just said probably isn't the norm. Um, there is this sort of involvement and this need to really preserve or protect our children from almost anything that could cause them any type of negative emotion um, that I feel like has gone to this place where it's really impossible to give our children that type of attention without sacrificing the foundation with which our family started. Right. So I think you've pointed out a very healthy concern and a very important item to discuss. So let me begin with, there's a, a Jewish thinker, his name was Nisi Ezekiel, and he lived in the 20th century, and he was from India. And this is what he taught for parents. He said, protect me from my secret wish to make my children in my own image. Let them dance to their own music, dissonant perhaps to me. I love that. And it really does say that our children are, yes, a product of us genetically, biologically, by way of love, if we've adopted them. But ultimately, they're going to choose their own path and their genetic tendencies or whatever their cultural or environmental experiences are will guide them to different experiences. And all we can do is really be facilitators and navigators um, and lovers unconditionally of our children who never give up on them. But eventually, we really have to let them experience life as it is. And as we grow, we know that life hurts. So uh, in a way, Judaism suggests that parents, we're not God. 
Although sometimes children up to a certain age think we really are. They certainly do look at us that way. That's right. But we're not. However, the role that we do play is, is an unconditionally loving parent, just as God is an unconditionally loving God. God isn't all powerful. God doesn't pull our strings like a like we're puppets at the end of the line. But God is an unconditionally loving God who, even when we trip and fall and hurt ourselves, God couldn't prevent it. God can't kiss our knee, but God is there to offer support when we need it most, just like we are for our children. If our children close the car door on their hand, God forbid, I mean, that's really awful. They can't turn to us and say, why didn't you prevent it? Well, we couldn't stop it. We couldn't help it. But we're always here to provide our children something that they need so they can grow from their experiences. And I think that's really our role. But at the end of the day, I'll never forget when my son, who was about three or four, came down the stairs after we had dutifully tucked him into bed, read him every story under the sun, kissed him, hugged him, played with him, and thought he was in bed. And we came to the family room, and my wife and I were watching television, and there he was. He came downstairs to see us again. And we said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I, I want to be with you. And I remember saying to him, it's 9 p.m. This is adult time you need to go back to your room. And he looked and he shrugged his shoulders, he turned around and he went back to his bedroom. And when you set boundaries, then you discover that within that boundary, you have time for each other again. I love that you just said that because I have found that preserving that time of day has been just the most important thing I think I've ever done. Since my daughter was born, we established the 7 p.m. bedtime. And then I would joke, like, now it's date night. Like, we have time. It's just the two of us. And no matter what it what it is, like, whatever we're doing, that is adult time. There's only grown-ups awake from 7 p.m. Now it's sometimes more like 8 o'clock um, onward. And it's just this time of day that I can always rely on where I'm just going to be with Ben. And no matter what happens that day, I mean, I know that I have that. So while I didn't have any marital counseling after my baby was born, I sort of figured out, okay, survival mode. I This is something I need to have and that I need to be able to rely on. Absolutely. And I think just as you're saying that you're relying on it for yourself, actually your children are relying on it too. Because children love structure and boundaries. They like to know where they need to be and ought to be. So when you say it's eight o'clock, they're going to have a, re- a, a reaction, a a natural trigger that says, oh, it's 8 p.m. I remember that's mommy and daddy time. I need to be in bed. So when you build that structured anticipation, they rely on it just like you do. That time of day is just as important to them. There's this desire to like sort of, I think, make our kids... We have to remember the difference between making our children happy and also protecting them and that that also really makes them happy. It saves them from anxiety. It gives them a sense of safety. Right. And even if there's a time when you disappoint your children because of the decision you make for them, such as bedtime, it doesn't mean you're an evil ogre. (laughs) And I think that's what parents sometimes need to get over themselves about, that sometimes being parents is providing their children a boundary and a structure that becomes even more important when they're teenagers, when they really 
resent their parents' intervention, but also appreciate when they set a boundary for them. Um, because they might say to their teenage friends, my parents are the worst. I have to come in at midnight. But secretly, they'll come in the house and say, thank you for letting me come home at midnight. I didn't really want to be out there. You didn't really um, want to be out there. That's how they're really... Mm-hmm. I remember feeling that way. And in, in high school, I had a midnight curfew. And I remember feeling internally just very lucky that I had a curfew that somebody cared enough to give me one Mm -hmm. because when I was out, that wasn't necessarily the case with everybody. And it's a way we show our children we love them. Absolutely. I'd also recommend that as your children grow and they become verbal and they have preferences, I do remember that one of my children, when we sat them down for dinner, said, this isn't what I want for dinner. And I said, who asked? Yeah, this isn't a restaurant. This This is is dinner. Oh, how quickly it can become a restaurant! But it's true. This is not what I want. Yeah, yeah. And if and if it's a rainy day and you can't go outside, somebody once said, "Be careful." Uh, before you ask your children what they want to do, because you might not want to hear the answer. Right. I'm always very careful with that. And I always hear myself asking that question. And I'm thinking, wait, I don't want the answer to this question. Right. I don't want to know what your preference is. We have to do the thing that we have to do anyway. That's right. And sometimes I also learn that it's helpful to give young children a choice. Do you want to do this or do that? So they, they begin to understand that they do have choice. They have some power over what they can do. But if you give them two options that you can live with, then you don't have to provide something that you're unwilling or unprepared to do. Exactly. And the other thing that I love about telling our children, I guess, what's going on is that while they think they would prefer to spend time with mommy and daddy and have mommy and daddy home with them all the time, um, what they don't realize and what they do end up feeling grateful for is that mommy and daddy love each other enough to go outside and spend time together. Mm-hmm. I think that makes them, I always think about that. You know, we have a Saturday date night every Saturday and I think I'm, oh my God, how happy are my kids going to be one day that they know that like mommy and daddy want to spend time together. Right. Um, I try to think of it, I, I, I imagine myself handing them a present every time I'm leaving the door when one of them in particular is very upset that I'm leaving. I just see myself handing her a wrapped box. Like, I'm giving you this. Right. This is a gift. Right. And, and that was something that I mentioned to you in premarital counseling, was Did to you? have a date night. Yes. Okay. That's where I got that from exactly. then. Exactly. Once a week. Yeah. Um, either just the two of you or occasionally if you invite friends to join you. But even as you long to be together without kids, um, a busy week can mean sometimes you put off or postpone important conversations or intimate time together. But if you have the date night... You can look forward with anticipation for something uh, that you really need. And children love structure and schedule. So I remember when my kids were little and my wife and I would leave on a Monday night to go out for our date night, they weren't even bothered by it at, mm-hmm. at one point. They fully expected it. And it helped them with some of the other separation anxiety issues because they sort of went back into themselves and remembered when mom and dad went out for date night. It's just like going away for some time. And so separation anxiety... Um, wasn't it? They start to understand that you're coming back. And I have found that with Selma, like she used to have a hard time with it. But now she just knows she knows where where we're going. Mommy Mm -hmm. and daddy are going to dinner. Right. So having children can be the first really major, totally upending challenge that you can have in a marriage. And I always like to think that when when you're faced with challenges as a married couple, it's this opportunity. If you do get through it together, you come out on the other side and you're stronger together and you're happier together. You're in this whole new state of of joy being with each other. We have these photos of ourselves. We go to Colorado like once a year and we always get like one of the corny tourist photos taken on the top of the mountain. 
And in each time I take that photo with Ben, I just think I'm like, you know, this is maybe the happiest that I've ever been with you. And I look back at all the photos and I would never go back to any of those pictures. Like each one sequentially, no matter what we were going through at the time, there were hard times we were in Colorado together. But even through those hard times, I was more joyful with him in that in our relationship than I was maybe that time we were getting engaged and we took a picture because we know each other better mm-hmm. and we grow together. Right. There are going to be scenarios, which there are many, many of, where children come into the picture and it's that thing that just breaks the marriage apart. It's mm-hmm. not the marriage can't hold, the center can't hold. Mm-hmm. And it shows us, okay, like this is too much. This is too much conflict. It's too much challenge. And you gave a sermon about this, which I was at home with my kids mm-hmm. and missed. My husband told me about, which touched on divorce um, with young children. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to hear about that. Yeah, I think the, the important point about it is, just as you said, those pictures at the top of the mountain were sequential. And it is... Um, thoughtful and it's um, nice to go back to certain times in the past, but it's very difficult to stay there. Mm -hmm. So in order to be in the present, you really have to look at the most recent picture and appreciate how far you've come and how deeply you've grown together. Eventually when children leave at 18 or 21 and when they themselves get married, just as I said in premarital counseling, you and Ben are now orienting towards each other and less towards your parents as primary caregivers, validators, or affirmers. And sometimes parents have to adjust to that too as their children orient towards each other. So if you can send your children off to college or off with their own life partners, and you can be your best friends now that the house is empty, then you've done a wonderful job of growing together. The danger is when two people have not grown together or sequentially, as you suggested, and ultimately when the children are gone, they don't know each other anymore or they've gone in separate directions or maybe by virtue of professional or personal failure, they haven't really acquired more life skills. In Judaism, divorce is nothing we advocate for, but it isn't a sin. And sometimes we call divorce a correction. And when we allow the other person to find at that stage in his or her life what he or she needs to be, then it's really a gift that we can give to that person to go become what he or she needs to be while releasing the other to go and be what he or she needs to be. I love that. It's a, it's a correction. It's a correction. I love that. So the, even in Judaism, the ketubah that we sign, the Jewish wedding contract, while today for the most part it's a symbolic document, it does talk about dreams, expectations, and and uh, promises to each other. But it was we don't say in a Jewish wedding till death do you part, or for as long as you both may live. There's no expectation that the marriage should be for all time in eternity. If it is, wonderful. That is the greatest hope. But if, God forbid, through death, divorce, or some other outcome, the two people can't be together again, there's nothing that prevents a person to find a new companion or life partner in the future. And I see it often, not just from divorce, but when one becomes a widow or a widower, There's a sense of loss that's obvious, but also a hole in one's heart that can only be filled by finding another friend, a companion, a a life partner, whether through marriage or just companionship. It's something that we shouldn't deprive ourselves of, and it's certainly no sin to do it. 
that's so for the people who are listening to this who maybe have young children and this is something that they're probably on the verge of experiencing how can we express to our young children what's happening in our lives with our partner without I guess I want to say with while doing the least amount of damage but just providing the most comfortable experience for them oh boy it's a really big question and the truth is that sometimes as um as adult as we are, doesn't necessarily mean that we're grown up. And so when frustration in relationships occur, deep uh, failures either in work or, or uh, expectations of oneself or the other, uh, we blow up, we explode, we get angry, we, dis- we, get self- we get destructive and self-destructive. There can be alcohol and drugs and fidelity, all kinds of issues that are really symptoms of something much deeper that needs to be addressed. And so very often in premarital counseling and later, we often say, I do, that marriage is not some Hollywood image of perfect relationships and walking into the sunset. Marriage is work. And the the most important component is communication. Talking about feelings, not labeling another. If you're upset with your partner, it's better to say, help me understand what you're doing. Or when you do this, it makes me feel. Rather than saying, you are a slob in the kitchen and I hate it because you blank. (laughs) Um, Those are horrible labels that it's difficult to peel off and we're prone to label the other as a result. So... Communication is important, and the area of communication that's really at the heart of many of the problems is all about sex. That's so funny that you say that because I just did an episode about this, and you do a marital premarital counseling session about it. Okay, so dive in, tell us more. So the truth is that I, we're very sexual beings, and Judaism has a lot to say about our sexual urges, and it's one of the reasons that one of the premarital counseling sessions that we do is to study but biblical and Talmudic teachings about how to take this urge, which is God-given, and turn it into the blessing that it's really meant to be. In Judaism, sex is not a sin unless we corrupt it or exploit it. But if it's an urge that we have, just like eating, sleeping, or work, if we use it well and use it to enrich our relationships, then sex is a pure joy. But it's something that changes over time. Um, I, I like to tell the story that when I taught a class on sex and Judaism, a lot of people attended because if you put sex on the title, people come out for it. But there was a couple in their 70s at the end of the sessions came up to me and they said, we wish we had known this stuff when we were younger. And what they're really saying is that when you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, things really work quite well and exactly when you want them to. But when you get older, things change. There's some mechanical failure. Some mechanical failure. Yeah. And in in Judaism, if something doesn't work, go get it fixed. If it hurts, find out why. It shouldn't hurt. It should be a source of pleasure. And really, communication in the bedroom is a place where couples can be vulnerable with each other. They can take risks with each other as long as it's private, confidential, and mutual. Um, and if there's consent between husband and wife or life partners, then there's nothing but joy and deeper, intimate moments with each other. So as the children come and go, what remains behind always is an incredibly 
deepening and emerging relationship between life partners. Well, I can imagine that the reason for that is you have to be the closest you could possibly be to another person in order to have sex with them. And when you have children, especially, it is so easy to just go in another direction. You're not, you're busy, but to make it this expectation that you're going to always come back to that or come mm-hmm. back to that with regularity, you have to put yourself into this position of closeness with your partner. And so keeping that up throughout the life of your marriage, I can imagine probably has a lot to do with it continuing to stay joyful. Joyful and interesting. Yeah. And you can't do both if the children are sleeping in bed with you or if they're constantly violating boundaries that you're trying to to protect. So it's okay to lock your bedroom door. It's okay to put a gate on their door if they jump out of bed and run down the hallway. Um, and to make time, if even if you need a romantic getaway weekend and have grandparents or babysitters stay over, um, those are important times for a couple. And being close is the only way to be intimate. It doesn't always have to lead to sexual intercourse, but even certain intimacy really becomes important when a couple isn't always in sync with each other. Um, And talking about it, here's what I like, here's what I don't like, let me show you. Talking openly in bed can produce giggles and red faces, but who else would you rather giggle with and be red-faced with than your partner? And ultimately, it's nothing you talk about with others. And even if somebody asks, how are things in the bedroom between you? It's nobody's business, and you shouldn't answer that question. Right. It's very private. I love that. I love keeping that. I think there's so much in in pop culture, especially like there's this famous scene in Sex and the City where they all kind of go around the table and they talk about like how frequently they're having sex with their spouses or boyfriends. And I always like found that so interesting because I just think that there's, there is something to that being kept sacred and holy and not being shared. And we share so much right now. Like everyone Mm -hmm. needs to know everything about our lives, but there is everything we eat. Yeah. Look at, um, It's all on Facebook. It's all there. Um, I was on a conference call, a Zoom conference call with a number of important people, colleagues, and it was over the lunch hour. And I and some people on the Zoom screen were eating their lunch. And I began to laugh a little bit. I actually had to hide my screen <laughs> because it was as if I were sitting at the table and just staring at you close up, <laughs> watching your mouth move and eating. But there's nothing private anymore. Yeah. But I think we really need to hold up in a sacred way to set apart for a special purpose the intimate relationship we have with our life partner. And if that can remain sacred and set apart... Um, we'll always have something special. Well, I love that you said it takes work. It takes this extra effort because when you're sitting here in those first marital counseling sessions with Rabbi Lyon and you're not even married yet, you're like, I will never have to work on this. (laughs) This is just so wonderful and perfect all the time. And I think even then I knew like I will, but I didn't understand the way. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the magnitude like, wait, no, really, you're you're really going to have to like go to your calendar and you're going to have to actively find time to really spend with each other. And you're going to have to make it a point to discuss really boring things like your finances when you like you have to sit down and talk about it Um, and it's not going to just be something you can discuss whenever you want to because you're really not going to have the time to do that and there are so many messages that we get that if you have to work I can't tell you how many friends I've had share with me you know I feel like if I have to work so hard on something it's just not meant to be because the only messages that we get are like if it's if it's right it's easy but that's not true you know we have to work on the things that we care the most about absolutely I think you put it very well and 
I'm not one who believes in what I call calendar book philosophies. <laughs> so as you turn the calendar page and those written calendars, there's always those cute sayings at the top that keep you moving from day to day. I don't like calendar book philosophy. Oh, yeah. It's light. It's trite. It's trivial. Because life is hard. Yeah. Relationships take work. And if something is easy, wonderful. But that's the exception to the rule because the most things that we really believe in and really love require all that we can give it. Um, somebody once said to me he wanted to be an entrepreneur. I said, well, that's great, but did you know you have to show up 24 hours a day, seven days a week to be an entrepreneur to really put into it everything you want? I said, you barely show up to work as it is, and that's one of your problems. So why do you want to be an entrepreneur? Um, I think if we're really committed to family, it, it is family first, but we do have to make provisions for excellence at work, excellence in the bedroom, excellence with the family. It's a lot of slices of a whole pie where we have to be present in each of those places. Some people are better at compartmentalizing their time with the people they're with, and some people have to work at it. But I don't want anybody to feel guilty because they work hard at and love their occupation. I don't want anybody to feel guilty because they spend more time with their family. Some people need loan time just to recharge before they spend time with their life partner or their children. And the worst thing would be, would be to resent children. They are growing. They are new. They are innocent. Um, they will bother you, but they will always love you. And all they really are looking for is validation for the things they're trying to do and trying to be. And don't forget, they're always watching you not only to see what you're doing, but they're watching to see what do you laugh at? How do you respond to trouble? How do you handle problems? If you're calm, cool, and collected, great. But even if you have to cry or yell, go in another room and let it out. Hit the punching bag. If you have to cry, it's okay to cry in front of them. But if you have to bawl your eyes out, go in the other room. I think children do better without experiencing the extremes of human behavior and emotion, and better to understand that adults, we can feel hate, we can feel emotion, we can cry, we can love, but better to, for them to see us in control of all of those experiences. Because they're having those experiences, right. and they need to know that we're going to be able to take care of them and help them out. Right, right. And a lot of the things that we go through during the day will not kill us, and they need to know that they can be afraid, they can be sad, they can hurt, and they're not going to they're not going to suffer They're as a result. It's all things that we can overcome if we think with our head and our heart. I have to tell you, having kids has been my biggest teacher around something, I mean, horrifying could happen to me, but it's school pickup time and I got to go in and I got to like put a smile on my face and Selma needs to not know anything about what just happened. And you really can just like stay present even in moments where you really feel like it's mm -hmm. impossible. Yeah. And you know, I will share with you that when I visit with families to prepare for a funeral. One of the things that I hear, and I think I heard from you when your grandma died, is that when you spend time with a grandparent, one of the most precious things that they say, they, they don't talk about what their grandparents gave them physically, but very often a very um, loving grandchild will say, when I sat with my grandmother or my grandfather, he or she made me feel like I was the only person in the world. And they listened intently. And I think we can do the same thing with our children. As distracted as we can be, as busy as I am, and I have four grown children, when they text or call, 
They know I will always answer, even if I have to tell them, let me call you back in a few minutes. If they know that I'm present for them, they feel connected, loved, and validated. So I think in, in addition to the distracted world we live in, if we can be present for our children and help them feel like when they're with us, they're the only person who matters to us, it'll help their self-esteem, it'll help them grow to become present for themselves and for others who enter their lives. Rabbi Lyon, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank it you for inviting been, me. It has been wonderful chatting with you. And thank you all for joining me and for listening. Um, this is Laura Max Rose, and you've been listening to Look Ma, No Hands. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma, No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time. Mom, 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 mom.